So I thought I'd share those with you tonight. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word there. Song of Solomon chapter 8. And we will read verse 6 and 7. The Bible says there, Set me a seal upon thine heart and a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Tonight we'll look at uh, the book of Song of Solomon in this title, A Love Song. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight you'd help us as we consider uh, this book. Uh, Lord, it's a book that is mysterious. It is a book that will not have all the questions answered to till we get to heaven one day. And I can't wait, Lord, to sit down at your feet and have you explain it to us. And that's going to be marvelous. But Lord, as we try to understand somewhat of a riddle here, I pray some clarity would be given and at the very least some wonderful uh, applications and truths will be pulled out and applied. And so, Lord, that we'll better understand, uh, Lord, purity, we'll better understand marriage, and we'll better understand even uh, the dating game for those in here who aren't married, and the Lord for our children that will be coming up. I pray, God, this will be a foundational sermon in a lot of ways uh, for many folks. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, I'm going to jump right into point number one right off the bat here. But before, rather, before I do that, that handout that I gave you, let me just say that the book of Solomon is a confusing book if you're new to Christianity. And the reason is, is because the, the book does not tell us who is saying what or when it is being said or where it is being said. It's basically like taking a script to a play and deleting out who is the name or the name in front of that uh, that line or taking all the names out and just taking all the lines and putting it uh, all together and uh, you got to figure out who is saying what and who they're saying it to and when they're saying it and where they're saying it and you can imagine doing that god had a, a reason for that amen god knows exactly what he's doing but you can imagine the the debate that has raged since the song, book of Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs has been produced. So I'm, what I'm going to share with you tonight uh, is what I believe uh, is how the book is broken down. Now, if you're here tonight and you vehemently disagree with the way that I have the book broken down, it's okay. We can still love each other and we can still attend church together. Alright? Again, we're going to get to heaven and God will explain it all to us. Alright? Uh, tonight I'm going to make a case for why I think it's broken down like this. And I would like for you to take it home and read it. Don't read it here. Don't read it here. Some of you are way ahead of me. You're reading on down and you're trying to get it figured out. Now, if you want to use that handout instead of your Bible tonight, as I tell you to turn to this chapter and verse and read it within the context of that, I think that's okay. Uh, but that was more meant as a study note for later on. One other thing I've got to make sure I get in here real quick is just this note to parents. I'm going to be saying some things tonight that I would not say in a junior church. I'm not going to say anything racy. I'm not going to say anything out of bounds. But if you have children sitting in the room that are cognitive enough to understand and you have not had that talk with them, you may be answering some questions on the way home. We do have a uh, teen class around the corner, and we do have a kids' class upstairs, and you're welcome to avail your kids to those, but you have been warned, amen? 
And so I want to make sure we get that out there in the very beginning. Let's jump into point number one tonight, and we'll look at uh, several thoughts here about the book of Song of Solomon as we try to understand it. Number one, notice, first, the opposing perspectives of the book. The opposing perspectives of the book. Now, for years, the, uh, the traditional view... The old view, the traditional view, is that Solomon in the book, who authored the book, uh, that he is a picture or representation of Christ, and that the Shulamite girl, or the girl coming out of the vineyard, she is a picture of the church, and Solomon is courting this young lady, and it is a beautiful display of the two of them conversing back together and, and, and sharing their love. Uh, uh, I don't believe that that view uh, fits the rest of the canon of Scripture. I don't believe that's accurate. I'm going to make a very strong case for that tonight as we got, move forward and get into that. The newer view, or the non-traditional view, is that Solomon, instead of being a picture of Christ, Solomon is a picture of Satan. That the Shulamite girl, the girl being pulled out of the vineyard, is a picture of the church, and that her uh, that her fiance is instead of Solomon, he is a shepherd, and that shepherd is uh, of course a perfect picture of Jesus Christ, and so that adds an additional character into the book. And as you take that handout later when you go home and you read through uh, the layout that's there for you, you can see how uh, maybe that would work and fit together. Now, let me give you, uh, by way of introduction or by uh, by explanation of this point, let me give you several reasons why I don't think that the old view is accurate. Uh, First I'll say is that Solomon's expressions of love throughout the book are sexual in nature. They're very sexual in nature, and this is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. All right, As you go throughout the Bible, you find that God's love to man fits the New Testament word agape. Agape. And that kind of love is a divine love. It is, it's a divine love from a creator down to his creation. Uh, that agape is a New Testament word, but that idea of love fits the Old Testament as well. Anytime God is expressing love to His creation, it is always divine in nature. It is always provisional in nature. It is always parental even in nature. Uh, but it is, uh, it is never eros or it is never sexual in nature. You cannot go anywhere else in the Bible outside of the book of Song of Solomon if you hold to the traditional view and find where God sexually loves His creation. You can't find it. So, if Solomon is a picture of Jesus Christ, or is a picture of the divine, uh, then this would be the only place in Scripture where uh, Christ, symbolically, is sexually loving His church. And it just does not fit the rest of the Bible. So, that would be the first reason I would give you why I don't hold to the old view. The next reason is that Solomon, at this point in the writing of this book, was married to 140 women. Many of these women were pagan. And contrast that with Christ. Christ uh, will be presented, the bride of Christ rather, will be presented as pure and spotless. Pure and spotless. So Solomon went out, he married a bunch of uh, pagan women. Many of them turned his heart from God. Uh, Many of his first marriages were grabbing up daughters of kings in order to make alliances from other pagan countries. And so Solomon's marriages 
plural, uh, which by the way violates Scripture, even going back into the Pentateuch, uh, uh, that concept of having multiple wives. So that concept of this woman being brought in, the Shulamite girl being brought into his harem or uh, the group of uh, women who he was married to, uh, the, the brides of Solomon do not match the bride of Christ. The third reason uh, I would list here is that straight out, Solomon is a terrible representation of Jesus. Terrible representation of Jesus. You look at Solomon, what did he do? He went out and he got wisdom. We talked about that with Proverbs last week. And then, uh, 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 rather a couple weeks ago, then last week we looked at Ecclesiastes, how he spent the lion's share of his life depending on wisdom, but not depending on godliness. What did he do? He chased after mirth. He chased after mid-servants and maidens. He chased after money. He chased after properties. He chased after all the vanity and vexation of life. And it wasn't until he got to the end of his life that he turned around and he looked back and he said, Wow, I acted the fool. Now, during the time he was accruing all these things and living vanity and living vexation of spirit, that was when he was accruing these wives. So Solomon, straight out, flat out, while he had some high points of godliness in his life, uh, by and large, he is a terrible representation of Jesus Christ. So, for those reasons and some others uh, that I, I can't get into all of them because the time won't allow me, uh, I, I don't hold to the old view. I hold to the, the newer view that Solomon, rather, in this book, represents Satan. Now, before we move along any further, you would ask, why would Solomon represent, uh, write a book uh, where he makes himself look bad or he comes, comes across as bad? And I have a theory about that. I think that Solomon looked at this gal that had been captured up uh, out of the field and brought into his palace. And here comes Solomon uh, in a caravan, uh, uh, riding in, in his uh, nice uh, bed that he was carried around in. And he hops off the bed and he comes running into the Shulamite girl, just assuming she's going to swoon, like every other girl did, and she's going to marry him. And she stands up to him because she's engaged to someone else. And she says, no, no. And I think that well, we know that there were three different times he tried to seduce her, uh, three different times that he approached her, and all three times, in essence, she rebuttaled him with, my beloved is, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. I, I don't belong to you, I belong to someone else. And finally, he lets her out of the palace and on to uh, her, her groom there. And I think Solomon stepped back and go, wow. There is actually a girl in, in Jerusalem. There's actually a girl in my kingdom who doesn't want me. I think he was so impressed by that girl that he wrote a theatrical uh, uh, musical about that. And so, uh, obviously, God would have told him to do this and would have even told him what to write, fitting there within the uh, uh, belief of the inspiration of Scripture. But uh, that is why I believe Solomon uh, would have written the book. Number two, we see the opera performers of the book the opera performers of the book. Now, a song in theater is an opera. A song in theater is an opera. So when you think of an opera, you might think of somebody singing with a lot of bravado. Is that the right word? Bravado? Did I get the right word there? Any music people in here? You know where your, your chin shakes up and down really fast? Yeah, that. Um, uh, I'm not the biggest opera music fan. How many of you here are opera music lovers? Anybody? You really enjoy opera? Bless your soul. Um, uh, uh, half the time they're singing in a language that isn't even English, and so that makes it tough. But an opera is a song in theater, so that's why the book of Song of Solomon is an opera. Let me give you the cast here of the, of the play. Letter A, you have the hero. The hero. Who is the hero of the book? The hero is the shepherd. 
This is the young man who in the end of the book is going to marry uh, the Shulamite girl. So letter A is the hero, and it wouldn't be a good sermon if Pastor Lejeune didn't alliterate all the characters. So I took care of that for you. Amen. Letter B is the heroine. The heroine, and this is the farm girl or the Shulamite girl. Let me quickly throw this out about her. Again, I just have way more information to cover than time will allow, so I'll just uh, slip these things in where I can. Uh, In the book, she calls herself black and comely. Uh, I believe she was probably just a regular Jewish girl like everyone else, but she had been out in the sun a lot. Now, what America defines, Western culture defines as attractive, okay? And and again, uh, I know that the lines are kind of being blurred with this, but what has been defined as attractive for a long time was not defined as attractive back then. For a Caucasian girl or a light-skinned girl, what do they do? They go to the tanning booth. They're trying to tan up a little bit. Uh, you didn't want to be tanned to be attractive in Bible times. In fact, you wanted to be pale-skinned because that meant you weren't part of the working class. You stayed inside and uh, you were you were weighted on hand and foot, so you were pale. And also back then, if you had uh, a little weight on you, you were chubby. So pale and chubby was attractive. Now that flies in the face of today. So when she called herself black and comely uh, or dark-skinned, uh, uh, that was because she was a working girl. She had been put out in the field and forced to work much of her life, so her skin was quite a bit darker uh, than the average girl. And I, I wonder if Solomon did not look at all these pale, chubby gals that he was married to and say, you know what, I think I'm ready to try something different. Go out there and find a girl that looks opposite of what I've got. I am getting bored with attractive. I want to try something different, and maybe that would have been why this girl was brought in. So, she was a Shulamite girl. She was a farm girl. Let her see. We see the heathen. The heathen. And again, uh, uh, for this era of Solomon's life, that very well describes him. He was a heathen. And then letter D, we have the harem. The harem. And this is the group of women that Solomon was married to. So, Solomon's wives and his concubines. He had a house full of wives. He had another house full of women who were being groomed to become his wives. And uh, and he could go in and pick whichever one of those he wanted, and they would become his wives. In my opinion, that is just disgusting. Okay, Now, he was married to 140 women at this time. I don't think he had sexual relations with all of them. I think that most of this was just a status I think this is more of a number than anything, but we will see as we go throughout tonight, they were clamoring for Solomon's sexual attention. The way they talked about Solomon, clearly they, they were wanting him and desiring him in that way. So we, uh, we, there we get the, the opera performers of the book. Number three, we see the driving purpose of the book, the driving purpose of the book. So let's jump in here and let's look at some philosophy here uh, of maybe what uh, God is trying to drive home to us through the book. Uh, and we'll, we'll weave the story in and out a little bit as we talk about these. Back in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we find letter 8 is a book about courtship. A book about courtship. Look with me there at verse 6 again. The Bible says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arms, for love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Look at verse 7. My Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it will utterly be contempt. And so this kind of love is a love that isn't a bedroom love. This is a love that is pure. This is a love that is deep. This is a love that has depth 
to it, great profundity to it, and that is a love that can only be developed through courtship. I'm going to say some things right here that fly in the face of our culture, but bless God, they need to be said. We live in a day, and this is outside of our church, okay? At least I hope it is. But we live in a day where if you're not climbing in bed with the other uh, person by the third date, then you are labeled as weird and you are labeled as a kook. And i got to say that uh, sex is meant to be for inside the confines of marriage and there alone. You ought to be pure, young folks, to your wedding day. And you think, well, pastor, we all know that. And i got to say, I've worked in some large ministries, and, and I even uh, uh, taught school for the first two years I was out, out. And many of those kids had parents that had those kids in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And I, I know some of those kids well enough to know that many of them uh, were sleeping around before they got married. Some of them even shacked up with each other right out of high school while their parents are sitting on the pew of the church. And I'm left to scratch my head and say, where were the preachers to stand up and tell these kids, that is sin. S-I-N, sin. Now, it's not a popular sermon to preach, but it needs to be preached. And parents, you need to repeat that early and often to your children. Sex outside of marriage is sin. And it's not just sin against uh, uh, God. It's not just sin against the other person. It's sin against yourself, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians. And so, what is the biblical model? Well, it's courtship. Now, I'm not going to get into the the nuances and all the semantics of dating versus courtship. Uh, When Angela and I were courting each other before we got married, we called it a dating relationship, okay? And so, it it comes down to semantics. You'll hear people say, well, we don't believe in dating. We believe in courtship. And I just say, take the semantics and get rid of them, okay? Listen, let me just put it to you like this. Um, uh, young man, young lady, you need to make sure that if your parents are saved, they have signed off on you dating the other person. I think that's a good idea. I think if your parents aren't saved, but yet they have their head screwed on straight, and, and, and they, they are living a normal life, I think your mom and dad need to be on board with what you're doing. I, I, look, if you want more information on that, I can give that to you out of here. Okay? I believe strongly about that. I believe the Bible teaches that uh, you need to honor your parents in that way. And I think that you need to do everything you can to walk up to that wedding day pure. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And that is Christian courting or Christian dating. Letter B, we see it as a book about commitment. It is a book about commitment. Look back at uh, chapter 2 with me in verse number 16. Chapter 2 and verse 16, the Bible says there, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. My beloved is mine, and I am his. You see a strong commitment there. Look, Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 3. Chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Again, a verse about commitment. And this is the Shulamite girl talking about uh, that shepherd. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Turn over in this. I love this next verse. It's even uh, more. uh, There's even a little more to it. Chapter 7 and verse number 10. Chapter 7 and verse 10. The Bible says there. Let me get on the right page here. It says, uh, I am my beloved's and his desire is is toward me. His desire is toward me. Now, let me just say that many people have a desire toward the opposite gender while they're dating. They have a desire toward them while they're engaged. But then you get married and you're not careful, your desire drops off. Your desire drops off. 
Look, when I say desire, what I mean there is that you're looking to do something to show your spouse you love them regularly. Regularly. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. I just want you to think about this. This is to all the married people in the room. When was the last time you did something to show your spouse that you loved them special outside of a birthday, an anniversary, or a holiday? Now think about that. Has it been a month? Has it been six months? You say, Pastor, how do you maintain a happy marriage? How do you do that? Well, the way you do that, the way you do that is by getting in the habit of doing something to show your spouse you love them regularly. Now, I'm not here to toot my horn. Let me just share with you an example. All right? If I'm in the grocery store by myself, I know there's like seven, eight, a dozen things that if I, if I happen to put that in the cart while I'm there picking up milk and bread and all the things husbands do, amen? Uh, if I happen to put that in the cart and put that in the bag and sneak that on the counter and walk away, I'm going to have a very happy wife. Right now, Angela's into cherries. Cherries aren't cheap. Real good cherries aren't cheap. But I'll, uh, I'll put a bag of cherries in the cart and I'll pay for those. And it's gotten to the place now where if I don't even put something in there, uh, she's, she doesn't say anything, but I think she might be a little disappointed. What is that? That is showing desire toward your spouse. That is showing that commitment. Let me say this as well. There are going to be rocky spots in the marriage. There are going to be times where maybe uh, 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 the marital bedroom isn't where you want it to be because of sickness or maybe uh, even uh, some bitterness that can set in. Maybe a pregnancy sets in. Your spouse needs to know that you're committed all the way. You're committed all the way, no matter what. Letter C, we see it's a book about Christianity. It's a book about Christianity. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And again, uh, uh, Solomon is a picture of the heathen. He was that roaring lion uh, uh, roaming about this young gal, trying to ruin her, trying to pull her away. This is a book about Christianity. This is staying true to your spouse, even though you've got those roaring lions that are around you. John, 1 John 2.15, a familiar verse, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're to keep our hearts pure. For sake of time, let's move on. Number four, we see the sensual proposition of King Solomon. The sensual proposition of King Solomon. Look down, uh, uh, we'll first notice letter A. His first seduction was filled with assumption. His first seduction was filled with assumption. Back in uh, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 9, to set the stage here, this young Shulamite girl has been ripped up out of the vineyard where she was working by uh, Solomon's men. She's been brought into the palace. Uh, Solomon's not there. She arrives and uh, uh, right out the bat you have the harem uh, standing there and they are very uh, jealous toward this young lady and they're talking down to her as they're talking up Solomon. And when uh, um, uh, when they get through saying what they, they're going to say, Solomon shows up, he sees the girl, he comes walking in and he's going to do his very best to make that good first impression and seduce her. And you see how arrogant Solomon is you see uh, uh, how assumptive he is that this girl is going to say yes because he's not used to women saying no. Look at verse 9 there. It says, Now I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, uh, thy necks with chains of gold. Look at the assumption here in verse 11. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. 
He's not getting on a knee and saying, will you marry me? He's telling her, hey, I've already got your bed design picked out. This is already done. Very assumptive. He's very, very assumptive that she was going to give in a, a, a cave and, 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 uh, and, and marry him. Uh, let her be. His second seduction was filled with sexual talk. His second seduction was filled with sexual talk. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. She uh, pushes away and instead of talking about him there, uh, she turns around and, and talks about her beloved. And he thinks, ah, ha, ha, yeah, I've heard this before. Uh, eventually you'll give in and you'll look at my palace and you'll be impressed with my vineyards and you'll be impressed with all I got and you'll be impressed with all I can give you and, and you'll come around and, and you'll take me. And he even, uh, uh, chapter 3 there, he even allows her to... Uh, uh, be alone and spend the night. The next day, he comes back around and he's going to try to seduce her. And this time, he comes at her in a in a very uh, sexual way. Look at uh, uh, look at there at uh, look there at chapter four, verse one. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now we don't talk this way. Amen. If I ever told my wife that she's got hair uh, like goats, she'd just look at me like I lost my mind. Well, this is how they talked back then, okay? Uh, uh, the weirdness continues. But this was their culture. Verse 2, Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which come up from the washing, uh, whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren uh, among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. So he's starting at the top of her body, and he's going to work his way downward. Verse 4, Thy neck is like the Tower of David, builded from an armory wherein there uh, hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. And then he crosses the line. Okay, David, or rather Solomon, you complimented her hair, you complimented her teeth, you complimented her cheeks and her, and her temples, you even complimented her neck. That was where it should have stopped. Verse 5, thy two breasts. Whoa, Solomon, that is not your business. Uh, are like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. I will get me to uh, the mountain of myrrh into the hill of frankincense. So uh, there he... Uh, uh, well, let's read down a little further. Uh, uh, verse 7, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. So uh, his second seduction, he comes at her with sexual talk. Let her see his third seduction revealed his carnal lifestyle. Here Solomon's going to reveal just how carnal he is. And maybe the greatest piece of evidence on why this isn't Christ is uh, found right here in chapter 7. Verse number 1, uh, he comes at her a third seduction. And i got to say, this was his last seduction. It was less imposing, more revealing of himself, uh, less pushy on her. And uh, you almost get the idea he's making one last effort here, and then he's going to back away uh, and give up and let her go. Verse 1, How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter! The joint of thy thighs are like jewels. The work of the hand of cunning workman, thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Now I can't see if this is Solomon, and Solomon's a picture of Christ. Solomon is talking about wanting to drink liquor out of her navel. I don't see that being a picture of Christ, wanting to drink liquor out of the navel of the church. So again, this might be the greatest piece of evidence to say, what in the world is that? It shows just how carnal he is. Verse 3, 
Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon which looketh toward Damascus. Thine heads upon uh, the uh, thine head upon thee is like caramel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights! This thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts a cluster. Of grapes. So again, uh, let's read down to verse 9. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the, the bows thereof. Now also, uh, thy breast shall uh, be as a cluster of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples, and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep uh, to speak. So we see here just how carnal of a man uh, that that he is. Now, um, uh, we could dwell here and we could stay here, but let me just quickly say that uh, sexual talk is appropriate within marriage, but outside of marriage, it doesn't need to exist. If you're not married, then leave that kind of talk alone. Uh, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, it says, marriage is honorable in the bed undefiled. There's nothing a married couple can do in the bedroom that is sin. But... Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. So uh, don't be a whoremonger. Don't be an adulterer. You will bring God's judgment down on you. Number five, let's look at the sexual purity of the farm girl. The sexual purity of the farm girl. We see here some things that I think maybe even Christians struggle with. And even good meaning, uh, a chaste chaste Christians even would struggle with. And let me say, turn to chapter 2 and verse 7, and while you're turning there, let me say, she begged the harem not to force the issue, but rather to let their love come around naturally. So the harem is pushing. They're desiring uh, Solomon to come and get them. And they're in competition with each other. They're at this point in the book, they're even in competition with her. And so uh, she has some advice here for the harem. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. She says there, I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, and this is the, the girls that are the harem there, by the rows and by the hens of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. And she's trying to tell them, look, my love is outside the fence here. He's a shepherd. He's outside the fence. And I, I'm, I don't want you to stir up my love. Let him come to me. Uh, too often times, uh, I see Christian parents who are trying to push their 6th and 7th grade daughter and son to date. Let me just say, that's not healthy. That is really, really not healthy. And you see, uh, oh, they have their first crush, and you almost celebrate it. Look, I, look if, if a boy likes a girl, look, in today's age we live in, that's a great thing. Amen? We want boys liking girls and girls liking boys. Uh, and if a boy likes a girl, praise the Lord, but that doesn't mean you've got to push them to act like they're married in the seventh grade. Stir not up love. In, uh, in my home, we're going to have three rules when it comes to the opposite gender. Okay? Here they are. No titles. Don't call her your boyfriend. Don't call him your boyfriend. Don't call her your girlfriend. What happens when you go boyfriend girlfriend? Well, now you act like you possess each other. And I don't want some snotty-nosed eighth grade boy thinking he owns my daughter. And I don't want my son thinking he owns some eighth grade girl, some ninth grade girl. He doesn't. That daddy still owns that little girl. 
That's still the that's still the rights of the dad. No titles. If you like someone of the opposite gender, great. That's um, uh, that that's just the the laws of how things work. Don't put any titles on it. No titles. Number two, no touching. No touching. Don't you touch her. The Bible says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that's before marriage. After you're married, touch her all you want, bless God. Uh, but no touching. And so no titles, no touching, and the third rule is no alone time. No alone time. What happens when a boy and a girl who like each other get alone? Things that aren't good happen. And so no alone time. Don't be secluded. Don't be alone. And so those are going to be the rules of my house for my kids when they hit the age. Right now, Matthew thinks girls are of cooties. April thinks boys are disgusting. And I like it that way. But I know it's not going to stay that way real long. Okay? Uh, one day Matthew's going to go wake up and he's going to, his head's going to turn. And oh, he's going to, yeah, everything's going to great. And so no titles, no touching, no alone time. And listen, when the time is right, and, 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 and here's my philosophy toward dating. And again, this isn't in the Bible. Okay, so I'll be careful to state it this way. Um, um, dating is supposed to be the car that takes you to the, de- the destination of marriage. And so if you can't arrive at the destination, then why are you riding in the car? Does that make sense? Oftentimes, teenagers ride around in the car, and what happens is they get hurt. They get their heart broke. And it gets broke again and again. By the way, boy, I'm really running short on time here. But I'm going to get this in here anyway. In fact, I might even go a little long tonight, amen? Uh, by the way, you know why we have a divorce problem in this country in part? In part? We have this little thing we develop from the seventh grade on with our kids. You date... Things start. Things aren't going real well. You start looking around. You find someone else. You break up. You date them. You date them a little while. You look. Things aren't going real well. You look around for someone else. You break up. You date them. And you do that over and over and over and over and over again. Then one day, when you're 25, 30, 35, whatever the age is, what happens? You find that girl or that guy that it's working out a little bit longer than it has before. And then you think, this is the one. This is the one. And you get married. But then you hit some bumps. Hit some bumps. And what has been the pattern from the 7th grade forward? (gasps) I'm not satisfied. You start looking around. You start looking around. You say, Pastor, what's the solution? If you're not dating in the 7th and 8th and ninth and 10th grade, and you've been taught commitment, and you've been taught to find someone who believes in commitment, boy, it just works a whole lot better. Here she said uh, over and over again in the book and in a couple other places she says uh, the same thing. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 4. Stir not up love. At the end of... Uh, uh, so uh, you, you get that idea there is that she why she was sexually pure is she wanted love to come naturally, not to be forced. Look, moms, dads, don't push your kids. Uh, don't push your kids into dating. Let that come around when the time is right. Now, if they're 25 and living in your ba- basement and they're not even trying, and you feel like you need to push them a little bit, then push them, alright? Uh, that's up to you. But when they're 15, don't push them. Let that come around on its own. Uh, uh, the sexual purity of the farm girl, uh, and let me just say this as well, at the end of Solomon's first attempt to seduce, she tells Solomon that her sexuality is for her future husband. Look at chapter 1 and verse 12. 
Here she's referencing her fiancé, or I believe she's referencing her fiancé, and she's referencing her wedding night. Look here, it says there, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night. Notice that, shall lie. He shall lie when the time's right, all night betwixt my breast. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. Now that's pretty strong language to come from a girl. But she's looking at this king who's coming at her and he's saying, she's saying this right here from the top of my head to the bottom of my toe, it is not yours. And the most private parts to me are going to belong one day when the time is right for my engaged spouse. Uh, again, we're looking at her sexual purity. Notice the purity of the conversation between the espoused couple. Chapter 4, verse 8. Down to chapter 5, verse 1, you find this couple conversing with, her, with each other. And for sake of time tonight, I, I, we, we, I can't read that in the service uh, because we're really pushing things here. But I would really encourage you to look at that in great detail. Uh, just how pure their conversation is between each other and how different that conversation is than Solomon when he speaks to her. Number 6, and lastly, we see the grand prize for the pure couple. The grand prize for the pure couple. Again, this is an overview of the book. She has two dreams in the book. Uh, in both dreams, she believes that her spouse or her, her um, engaged uh, uh, groom is coming to the castle to rescue her. And uh, one of them, she runs out in the street and, and, and finds something disastrous. I'll let you read that for yourself. I don't want to spoil it. But uh, it's really, really, uh, she wakes up and realizes that she's still in the palace and She's heartbroken. Finally, at the end, when Solomon can see, this girl is not going to marry me, he lets her go. And uh, the, the last act in the book, we find the wedding day. And, uh, and we find uh, where uh, they're coming to each other. And uh, you even have some, some comments there from uh, the, uh, the, the marriage party or the party there for the marriage. But look down at verse 5 of chapter 8. And here we have the couple conversing with each other. Where we find the marriage there. It says, who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. Uh, there thy mother uh, brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is as strong as, strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Uh, and that jealousy would have been the shepherd boy toward Solomon there. Uh, uh, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it, it, will, it would utterly be contemned. Uh, or, or, or shamed or condemned there. So here you see her coming to him, them rather riding in together, and you have uh, their marriage ceremony. And then the last thing you have, let her be there, would be the honeymoon. The honeymoon. Um, look down at verse 14. Here they, he says, Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or to a young heart upon the mountain of spices. And off they ride together, happily married. The chaste couple the pure couple she overcame the seduction of solomon and she got her shepherd husband and they married and they rode off in the sunset together and there you have a beautiful love story of doing it the right way listen i know the sermon i preach tonight isn't a popular sermon with the culture we're living in a day where right's called wrong and wrong's called right evil is called good and good is called evil Raise your children to be pure. Talk about it 
often. Talk about it often. Uh, my wife was not raised um, in a Christian home. Her mother's Catholic, and uh, uh, she was sent to a Methodist school. My wife really quit going to church at a young age. Uh, but her mother believed in purity to the wedding altar. And she preached that hard. And even in Angela's teenage years where uh, she wasn't acting like a teenage girl we would want to act here, she knew from her mother, listen, you will keep yourself pure to the wedding altar. And Angela's testimony is, I didn't stay pure to the wedding altar because, uh, because God told me to. I did it because my mom told me to. By the way, Angela's dad left Angela's mom when Angela was eight years old. You know what Angela's mom did? She said, I'm not worried about men. I'm worried about my children. Worried about my children. When Angela got into her teenage years and she started in her little bit of that rebellion, her mother sat her down and looked her straight in the eye and said, I have kept myself pure since your dad left. You will keep yourself pure too. And I can't tell you how many parents run around and act impure and then get surprised when their children do the same. That's no excuse for the kids. But parents, we've got to set the standard. We've got to set how we want it to be. And so, let's work at that. And even if the sermon flies in the face of the culture, it's still the Bible and it's still truth. And it will bring about maximum joy and happiness in our lives and in the lives of our children. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening.